Hey, this is Christy from Killer Fun, and I just have a quick programming note before we get started. We recorded this episode a little early. We were running up to spring break with our kids, and we wanted to uh, get one ready to be released. And so I know I make a comment in this episode about how somebody couldn't ruin this morning. And just please know that we recorded this before life in the U.S. and a lot of the world went sideways. And, you know, we're not trying to be cavalier, but we are trying to bring you uh, maybe a little levity and a little distraction from the current state of the world. We hope that you're all well and safe. Please reach out if you need to talk to somebody. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, Exploring the Intersection of Crime and Entertainment. You can find us on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod, or you can send us an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how you're doing. We hope that you're well and safe. And we know that this is a hard and uncertain time. And just know that we're going through that with you as well, and that we are wanting all the best for you. So with that, I'm going to leave you to the episode and thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Killer Fun, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Christy. And I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today, we have... Young Guns from 1988. Yay! We have- <laughs> I think we feel the same. You know, I am my daddy's daughter in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of ways. Uh-huh. And he loves Westerns. And uh, in that particular respect, I ain't nothing like my daddy. <laughs> well, then maybe you're not the right person to ask this question. Because I was asking myself, I need to talk to Jackie. Do I not like this movie because I don't like Westerns, it, uh, by and large? I would say it's not a rule. It's it's a rule, but there are exceptions. Maybe Correct. that's what I mean. Yeah, because, like, for instance, True Grit. Oh, it was amazing. Old one and new one. Yeah, they were both good. A couple of other movies would fall in that. Like, I kind of enjoy watching them. Um, and there's some hybrids, you know, like a Western theme, but sort of mainstream that I kind Cowboys of enjoy. versus aliens is kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Just because it was kind of ridiculous. Well, that, yeah. <laughs> and I kind of, I could appreciate the ridiculousness of it. <laughs> what about Space Cowboys? Does that count? I'm just kidding. <laughs> It's that kind of day. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think that maybe you didn't like it because it's a Western. Okay. I, and I say that only or is because... It, is, do I not... Or is it bad? I don't know that it would be bad. Okay. If, it, if they hadn't gone for some stereotypical Western okay. antics. Like, I felt like I would be fully engaged, and then they would do something that was so stereotypical Old West that I was like, come on. <laughs> You know, and so I don't know, because Emilio Estevez in this movie, phenomenal. Like, he is legitimately insane. I absolutely love it. He was so antisocial the whole time. It's just like when I was watching Fight Club. I'm like, look at him. He's antisocial. Jackie taught me about that. (laughs) No, I 
really understand what that means. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, he is, and the way he laughs, I mean, it's just, I, I kind of love his performance. Individually, I love all the guys' performance. Uh-huh. And there's moments that I really love. Um, but, you know, and then what's-his-face does his spitting and drooling charades, and I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. I, I just, I just can't. Yeah. You know. So I, I really struggled to watch this movie. <laughs> okay, I'm glad I'm not alone. This was one of those that I only watched once. I may or may not have used the 10-second button Oh, a couple of times. Oh, that's And you know what? Know. I didn't miss anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let's talk about who's in this. You've already mentioned Emilio Estevez, who is Billy the Kid. He was in all the teen angsty movies from the 80s, The Outsiders, The Breakfast Club, St. Elmo's Fire. That was then. This is now. Then he went on to the 90s and did the whole Mighty Ducks franchise. Oh, yeah. Which they're bringing back on Disney+. Plus. Oh, interesting. They're doing like a series. And uh, Emilio Estevez also wrote and directed a movie called The Public, which came out in 2018. He starred in it as well, and it did poorly, but I thought it looked kind of interesting. I haven't seen that. A public library, and that they're trying to, it's something about homelessness and a public library, and they like like make a stand. Original story? Yeah. (gasps) I know. Kind of interesting. I I, I will go. I will watch it. I will buy it. I will do anything to support Hollywood actually making original original stories. stories. Yeah. 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 That's all right. Oh, my goodness. I gotta go I see that. It looked interesting. Talented dude. Then we have Kiefer Sutherland as Doc Skurlock. I mean, he was also in a zillion '80s movies: Stand by Me, The Lost Boys, Flatliners. Um, he's worked really continuously movies and meaty TV roles: Twenty Four, The Confession, Touch, Designated Survivor, and he's got. Uh, remake of The Fugitive coming out as a television show this year in 2020. And typically, I don't like it when they do that, uh-huh. but I'm really interested. I'm a, I am a Kiefer fan. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I've enjoyed some of the things he's been in. I like his character in this movie because it's very similar to the character in Designated Survivor. Oh, okay. Which is very anti-Jack Bauer. Yeah. Which is also something I love about him. (laughs) I love the Jack Bauer character. Yeah. Yeah, I think that when you can take a movie and make it into a television show because there's more to say, I think that that's fun and interesting. So have you seen Shooter? No. Okay, because I love that movie, Shooter. Okay. Again, my daddy and I, we love Shooter. If it's on, we're going to watch Shooter. Okay. Love Shooter. But they made a series out of it, and I was very like, "Mm, I don't know about that. But then people at work and and people at church kind of said, oh, no, 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 you got to go watch Shooter. It's really, really good. And you know what? Uh, Mark is involved, right? So if he's producing it, you know it's got to be okay. Oh, okay. Because Mark Wahlberg was the star of Shooter. Okay. So for him to produce the TV show where Ryan Felipe is the star, and and so I'm like, okay, it's got to visit his endorsement. Yeah. Okay, maybe. That's kind of good. But I still haven't done it. Okay. Hmm. Then we have Lou Diamond Phillips. He is beautiful in this movie. Oh, my gosh. Jose Chavez y Chavez. Beautiful in this movie. My goodness. I I fanned myself a little bit during this movie. Um, He got his big break in La Bamba as Richie Valens. Of course. Which was fantastic. 
And he's done lots of movies from like a drama like Courage Under Fire to comedies like Sequoia and lots of TV, bit parts in Law and Order, the lead in True Blood's Longmire, and he was in Stargate Universe. I mean, just a, a huge breadth of work. Yeah. I'm so glad that he didn't get stuck just in Westerns. Now, I know Blue Bloods and Longmire are both kind of... They have a touch of that they, feel. They're, they're a little Western-y. They're Western-adjacent. Kind of like we're true crime adjacent. They're right. Western adjacent. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I have to tell you, though, that scene, it's all slow motion, and he's riding that horse and pulling two horses behind him. And I was like, is there anything more beautiful than that scene right there? That was <sighs> the reason to watch this movie. I mean, truly. Yeah. Truly. Then we have Charlie Sheen as Dick Brewer. And, of course, he's been in lots of movies from the serious, like Wall Street, to the absolutely ridiculous, like, Hot Shots. Yeah. Lots of television. You know, he had a fun bit spot on Friends as uh, Phoebe's (laughs) Navy (laughs) boyfriend. (laughs) He was in Spin City. Two and a Half Men is probably his biggest. Everybody now knows him from that. Yeah. He's such an underrated actor. He's actually so, so talented. And I think sometimes people forget that. Uh, Two and a Half Men, I could talk about that all day, about my opinion. But what I love about him is that he really has a uh, knack for timing. Mm, He really does on set. He has that perfect knack, and he acts with his whole body in a way. Mm. Like the way that people make facial expressions, he makes body expressions. And it's just, I don't know, I always enjoy him on screen. Then we have uh, Dermot Mulroney as Dirty Steve Stevens. I mean, okay, what do you know him from? Really? My best friend's wedding. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's probably the, is the biggest thing that he's done. He's done a ton of work. He's worked really pretty consistently, but he's always he's always that guy that you're like, oh, he's that guy from something else. <laughs> I've seen him before. What else has he been in? And then you're like, oh, he was the guy in my best friend's wedding. Seriously. Okay, so... That movie came out, I was in high school, right? Yeah. Because it was, what year was that? Like 97, 98? Yeah, somewhere around there. Anywhere. Um, and so that was the first time I realized, oh, older men are going to be attractive. Oh. It's not, I'm not going to just grow up and then be a pedophile. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think when you're in that, when you're yeah. in that age where you're kind of like in your older teens, you're looking at twenties and you're looking at people around you and you look at older men and you go, I don't know how I'm ever going to find them attractive because how could I, when all of uh-huh. these guys are what's so attracted to when me these, right now? When these all have baby faces. Oh, these, and these little chiseled jaws, but they're so clean and... Just, you know, I mean, there's just something about it. And I, that was the first movie where my friends and I went, it's going to be okay. <laughs> We're going to be okay. Because he was just so hot in that movie uh-huh. with his little gray hair. Yeah. And, oh. yep. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So thank you, Dermot. Yes. For giving some young adults hope. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> All right. Then we have Casey Samasco. S-I-E-M-A-S-Z-K-O. Yeah, it's not an easy name to say. How, how, how did his agent not get him to change it? I know, right? I don't know. Anyway, he played Charlie Boudre, Boudre? 
They called him Charlie. They called him Charlie. Yeah. Boudra. Boudra. Thank you. I think Boudra. He was one of Biff's henchmen in Uh Back to the Future. (laughs) He was the one that had the glasses, the 3D glasses on all the time. I'm like, (laughs) I bet he had a wicked case of the messed up eyes after filming those. Because, you know, you wear them too long and like your rods and cones get all mixed up. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, he was in uh, St. Elsewhere, in Stand By Me with Kiefer Sutherland, lots and lots of small parts, did a long stint on NYPD Blue. And then quickly, uh, Terrence Stamp played John Tunstall, and he was Malcolm Quince in Murder Mystery. Oh, yeah, Which we right. covered. Um, you know, very different points in his life. <laughs> yeah, very different And then points. we can't not mention Jack Palance. Oh, no. Of course, we have to mention him. He was Murphy. Yeah. He did a great job. And, of course, I have to mention Terry O'Quinn. Because if you've oh, watched yeah. Lost, yeah. you're a Terry yes. O'Quinn fan. Yeah. The absolute definition of perseverance this this man in Lost. And I just love how he's grown with the times. Of course, he was also on NCIS mm-hmm. in a very cool episode. But it's just a star-studded cast. Really, Emilio Estevez and Kiefer Sutherland, Lou Diamond Phillips were all pretty pretty well-established. Mm-hmm. Uh, though they were young. young. They were young, but they'd done lots of stuff. And Charlie Sheen, Dermot Mulroney, and Casey were... They'd done stuff, but they hadn't done anything big before right. this. Let's recap this Western. Oh, okay. <laughs> it starts with a close-up of these beautiful young men <laughs> and their, their real names. I really would have loved, in smaller type, under the gigantic type of their actual names, what character they were playing. Yeah, that would have been helpful because right from the it start. Was, it really would have because there's six of them and then a bunch of other characters as well. And it can be kind of difficult if you're unfamiliar with the story, who's who. And they kind of had a assumption that you were really familiar with the story of Billy the Kid. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, that's a large ensemble cast and it's really easy when they all look different, but also sort of similar because once you cover everyone in dust, everybody looks similar to know like who's who. After they all sneer sexily at the camera, (laughs) they shoot at something and the movie starts. It was the dorkiest beginning in the history of movies. It was was dorky, but there was a little bit of me that like my 13-year-old heart really loved it. It's true. I'm like, really, you could just show them being sexy and lovely for 45 minutes. And I probably would have paid to see that. I feel like that must have also been the photo shoot for all of the centerfolds in the little Mm -hmm. teen bot magazines we would buy. (laughs) Teen beat. Tiger Tiger beat. Yeah. I think tiger beat was the big one and teen beat was the knockoff. I think so. I think that's the way it was. I don't remember, but but I remember every one of them has some little quote poster in the middle I feel like each one of their little screenshots that they did, their stills was absolutely the centerfold at some point. Mm-hmm. Collect the whole set. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> yep. Exactly. You'd be flipping through the magazines. Uh, okay, this one's good. This one, you buy six magazines. Yes. Yes. <sighs> All right. Tunstall and Doc are in town when a young man runs from a disturbance from some very 
dangerous looking men. And Tenstall and Doc invite this young man who's in an animal pen hiding from these dangerous looking men to join them. And they whisk him off in their wagon. They just ride right out of town. That's it was a, easier to get away in the West. I, <laughs> Things were slower. I guess. Yeah, people didn't have glasses like they do now. No. So if you had not good vision. Too bad for you. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they arrive at Homestead and Chavez and Steve are fighting and using racial slurs at each other. And Dick, Charlie Sheen's on horseback and he breaks up the fight and he's kind of positioning himself as de facto leader. The men arrive in their wagon and Tunstall corrects their grammar first and foremost, corrects their grammar um, and tells Billy that these are the abandoned dregs of the West. And if he'd like to stay, they'll put him up. If he wants to leave, there'll be a train in the morning. Yeah. There you go. Billy decides he's going to stay and he gets the job of feeding a really aggressive pig. (laughs) And the boys really show him his place. They're loyal to Tenstall. They're his gang. They're called the Regulators. And they keep livestock from getting stolen. At dinner, everybody's really hungry. But Tenstall insists on manners and punishes rude behavior. After we learn that Tenstall wants them to have other skills than working with livestock and, quote-unquote, being handy with the steel. (laughs) He wants them to read and write. And surprisingly, Billy is already quite adept at reading. Very. Much better than any of the other. It's clear he's had some sort of education. Yeah. Yeah. He's had education and he is maybe just a little smarter in general. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe because he's got this hustler attitude, a little deception. He knows how to hide who he really is. Mm -hmm. You get that fairly quickly after the dinner. Yes. So in the morning, a bunch of men on horses arrive and Billy's in the pig pen and he hides there so that he's not seen. These men on horseback accuse the boys of robbing a merchandise wagon repeatedly. And we learn that Tenstall and Murphy are bitter business rivals in both cattle and a mercantile. The sheriff's on Murphy's payroll So he's got kind of an axe to grind, and everybody distrusts Tunstall because he's English. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that far removed from the Revolutionary War. And that's something you have to kind of remember about that. Right. And uh, they do a good job on the dialogue of actually setting that scene a little Mm -hmm. bit, you know? Like, we already fought this war, you know, little things like that. But I love how Tunstall is just unabashedly English. Yeah. But also, like, I wrote on a slow boat from England. I'm not going back. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm not leaving. You are stuck with me. Yeah. So Jay McCloskey arrives and asks Tunstall for work. He'd previously worked for Murphy and the gang is suspicious of him. So the group heads to a dance in town. And while they're there, Tunstall asks a lawyer, McSween, for help with the Murphy situation, is what they call it. <laughs> McSween says that Murphy already has beaten them to a bribe with for the governor. They've already bribed the governor, so they can't really expect help from the actual law. 
Doc spots a really unusual and pretty girl. Her name's Yen Sun, and she's the ward of Murphy. <laughs> Quote, ward. ward. Yeah. To mm. use an English term. <laughs> Just pointing that out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think she calls him her... Uh, well, she calls oh. him the benefactor oh, at one point. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. But it was basically Terry O'Quinn's character yeah. who told Doc that... You know, she was the ward. Right. Right. Uh, Which is an English term. I think it was the, the lawyer. Yeah. That's, Sween. that's McSween. That's Terry O'Quinn. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah. And so that's an English term that should just say that a family has entrusted her education in childhood to this family. Uh-huh. Yeah. Her care but, and her raising. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, no. But that's but, not the case. Yeah. Doc learns that Yen-sun is a slave, basically, because... Her mother accidentally ruined a shirt of Murphy's. Charlie gets into an altercation and the sound effects, horrible. It's a really like, they're not fantastic all over, but they kind of make sense. I mean, the gunshots and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Those are going to be loud and whatever. The, the punching sounds were just like really pulled me right out of the movie. (laughs) I'm like, boy, that's bad. That's just somebody full on hitting a sack of flour. Right. Like I it mean, was not it well, really sounded like a made up. It was bad foley. It was yeah. just bad foley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for foley artists generally. I really do too. It's a sounds like a fun job. It does kind of, doesn't it? It's be super really creative. fun. Yeah. You have to have be like a good at word association to do Ooh. that. You know what I mean? Because you have to hear something and then immediately be able to sort of associate it with something that sounds similar uh-huh enough yeah that you can because catching real sounds is very hard my husband made a film her unlikely kin and it was his thesis film um and it's a short film and there was one scene because i was a producer on the film mm-hmm. executive producer and line producer and i but because i my background in music and stuff like that i worked a little bit with a sound designer and editor and so um there was one scene where we had actually captured the sound of the car door or truck door slamming and it drove me batty because I just wanted to dub it where I, in a situation where I could control it because I couldn't get the actual sound to sound right. There was uh-huh. something odd about it. And there, we worked so hard and it's much better now, but every time we watch it, I'm like, <laughs> it's still not it's quite still right. not right. <laughs> you know, but we, we really did get it pretty close, but I saw cool. there's a lot of work in that Foley sound stuff. Yep. So then we learned that it's a new year's Eve party that they're at. And at midnight, everyone shoots their guns in the air in celebration. At dawn, they're headed home. The gang joyfully heads off to hunt pheasants that they've seen on their way home. Boys will be boys. Boys will be... There's little that I hate more than that (laughs) saying. Even in that context where it was actually somewhat on target, I was still like, ugh. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh. No, no. They leave Tunstall behind because he's in his wagon, can't really go and hunt with them. Plus, he's kind of an older gentleman, and Murphy's men ride up behind Tunstall and shoot him and his horse dead. The lawyer, McSween, asks the justice of the peace to serve warrants and deputize the gang, the regulators, to bring the murderers to justice. They're having a solemn burial of Tunstall, evidently in the middle of town. 
Yeah, that was weird. It was super weird because the mercantiles were like right right there. I mean, I feel like, like we don't bury people in the middle of cities. I mean, it was a main street, which means that on the back side of the buildings and such along Main Street, you might find a little cemetery because it might just be right behind the church. Yeah. Which may be right on Main Street. So it was weird. I'm trying. I'm trying, but it was just a really I ab- bad I ab- location choice. Uh, yeah, I applaud your <laughs> I applaud your trying to justify it and I really think it was just poorly done. <laughs> <laughs> they go ahead and they end up deputized and the the gang, the regulators go to serve their first warrant as special constables at a bar to a man named Henry Hill instead of arresting him. Billy shoots the guy in the latrine and a whole shootout starts. And I'm like, Hey, Billy's antisocial. Yeah. And got a kick out of it. So he's really antisocial. Yeah. I mean, he didn't just do it cause he had to do it. He loved it. Oh yes. Yes, he did. Billy goes by several names, Henry McCarty and William H. Bonney. And there's a whole list of other ones, but those are the two that they mentioned in the movie. Billy is called, uh, the head of the gang in an article in the newspaper. And that kind of annoys Dick because he's the head of the gang. Yeah. Yeah. And then later the newspaper prints a drawing of quote unquote Billy and it looks just like Dick. Yeah. Really? He still annoys him even more. So the gang sneaks up on two men that they have warrants for. And then the way McCloskey behaves, they realize, well, Billy realizes He's a plant from Murphy. He used to work for Murphy. Oh, wait, he still does work for Murphy. And they end up shooting all three men dead. Uh, Chavez, who had an indigenous mother, finds peyote growing in the snow. Yeah, I think he actually went looking for it. Okay. I get the impression that he knew what he was doing. Oh, okay. He didn't just he was like, like, happen upon the oh, peyote. Because okay. he like decided that he was going to consult Oh. Remember a little bit? Oh, like he kind yeah. of was like, I'm going to, and then he walks away and then he ends up walking and then finds the. Yeah, that's right. A little bit. I don't know. I, I yeah. felt like that was probably the case. That was really like. You have the, to know what you're looking for. That's the least of my worries in this movie is whether he went looking for it or happened upon it. <laughs> well, it shows you how awesome the movie was that I like paid attention a lot to that. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The men drink tea. Um, and they hallucinate and wax philosophical in a slightly too long scene. Uh-huh. I'd agree with that. Though it was entertaining, but it was still too long. I think the moral of the message there is don't do peyote on a mountainside. Because I was very nervous <laughs> that they were going to be falling down mountain hills and things like that. Be Grace and Frankie. Do it on a beach. Oh, yeah. There you go. Their peyote scene, hysterical, by okay. the way. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I knew they were going to live because I knew there was a Young Guns too. Well, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't really concerned if they fell. So when they come come down from their high, uh, there's some dissension between Billy and Dick that we see. Um, but they don't really have much time to work it out because there's a price on each one of their heads. And Buckshot Roberts wants to collect. There's a shootout. And several of these, the gang are shot. Dick dies and the rest retreat. Doc leaves the group to get clean bandages and 
write Dick's mother in Vermont, but really he's just trying to get Yen Su to go live with him. Yeah. He wants, they want to run away back to the East Coast. And, and he is delightfully awkward <sighs> with her. He always stands just a little too close. Uh-huh. And he's just so cute. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Billy wants to go after the corrupt sheriff, but Chavez really wants to not die because his entire clan was murdered by the army and he's the only survivor. And if he dies, so does the clan. And Billy says, we're your clan now, man. Mm-hmm. Can't let us die. Uh, Billy shoots the sheriff in town and they start a whole shootout and now they're really being hunted. McSweeney, the lawyer, tells them that their deputation, dep- deputization, thank you, <laughs> <laughs> has That's been hard. revoked. It's been revoked. And uh, Billy has a plan to make a ruckus so that the president of the United States, President Hayes, will fire Governor Axtell of New Mexico. Yeah, this scene. That, I'm like, oh, he really is smart. Do we believe him? Yeah. I don't know. I really struggled. Like, I hit pause on this scene. Because all of a sudden, I was like... This is where you hit pause? This is where I hit pause. Okay. We'll have to get to our psychology moment, and we'll kind of talk about that. Okay. But, like, I had thoughts. Okay. I stayed here for a little while. Okay. Well, then... I look forward to hearing about that. Yeah. Okay. They go to a brothel bar place. It's like bar and brothel. And Billy talks to a man named Joe Grant, who said he's going to kill Billy the kid. And he's talking to Billy, not knowing who he's talking to. And Billy asks to see the gun that's going to kill Billy the kid. And Grant obliges (laughs) to use a Western word. I use oblige. It's a southern word, too. It, 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 that's fair. While Grant is bloviating. That's a great word. That's <laughs> <laughs> just exactly what he did. Uh, Billy unloads his gun and then asks for a description of Billy the Kid. And Billy hands back the gun, looks in the mirror behind the bar, and says, I see him, I see him. <laughs> and then they shoot at one another. But, of course, oh. Joe's gun's not loaded, yeah, and loaded. Billy kills him. And laughs. And laughs. Because he's antisocial and maybe psychotic. (laughs) Billy wants to go back to Lincoln for revenge, but the gang convinces him to head towards Mexico, and they're warmly greeted at a border town. Here, Charlie meets a girl, and they get married. During the wedding, Pat Garrett, he's the officer of the law that would eventually kill Billy the Kid arrives to tell the gang that Murphy is going to kill the lawyer McSweeney. No, McSween. McSween. I always want to say McSweeney. I know, because it's like McSween or Sweeney Todd. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to kill McSween and his wife, and everyone, including newlywed Charlie, return to go help him. The gang tries to get the lawyer and his wife to go with them to old Mexico, and... McSween confesses that he's sick and doesn't want to go. Murphy's men, the army, and more law enforcement trap the gang and McSweeney in the house. McSween! Dang it! (laughs) McSween in the house. There's a tent shootout. 
McSween declines picking up a gun because it'll negate his life insurance policy. This line was so funny because he's so still very articulate in the middle of all of this. And he says, participating in an active shootout would negate my life insurance. I just can't do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> what? It's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> Yen Sun, I don't know why. Murphy brought her, but he did, and she makes a run for the house and joins Doc because she loves him too. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. They needed a love story in here somewhere. They needed something of a whatever. Yeah. So there's more shooting, and then the house is set on fire, and Charlie regrets leaving his new wife. McSween sends his wife out to surrender, and during the distraction, Chavez sneaks out to get horses so that they can flee, and they toss Billy out of a window in a trunk from the second floor to get him in a good shooting position. This is the final stand. I know, it's like suspend your disbelief. Yes, just For this final span, just, you know, there's a certain amount of ridiculousness that is inherent in... Westerns. Yeah. In, They're just in Westerns. Yes. Yeah. In, in all of these outlaw stories. Charlie and Steve die fighting. Doc and Yen Sun escape and they head east with her mother and 14 brothers and sisters. Chavez moved to California, changed his name, and got work on a fruit ranch. Susan McSween went on to become a prominent cattlewoman. Governor Axtell was forced to resign by President Hayes, so Billy got his way. And Billy, Billy was injured but escaped after killing Murphy. Yes. This movie, it had a $13 million budget, and it grossed $45 million. So box office-wise, it was quite a success. Yeah. And enough... That they made Young Guns, too. Right. Yeah. True. I could not find Roger Ebert's review of this movie. <gasps> no? Only, only the Young Guns 2, that's as far back as his archive oh, went. Oh, my goodness. Amazon reviewers, they, yeah. like, they like this movie. Really? Four and a half stars. Interesting. Rotten Tomatoes had an audience score of a little less, 76%. Critics liked it even less than that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I did see one review from Ian Nathan at Empire, and he said, it's a good idea to cast the Brat Pack in a Western, but this was badly realized and altogether a bit flat. Hmm, okay. And I thought, fair. Uh-huh. Yeah. Bill Chambers of Film Freak Central said it fails to humanize Billy the Kid or justify his lore. Marianne Johansson of Film, or I'm sorry, Flick Philosopher This is a very brown movie. Leather, planks of wood, dirt, dust, horses, and the tenor of the performances. (laughs) Which I thought was really funny. And and then the last one. Uh, Hal Henson of the Washington Post. They behave as if our adoration were their birthright. Uh That's really fair. That is really really fair on point yeah. i would say but i don't dislike the movie for that reason right right exactly there are other reasons to yeah not like I, it. I don't dislike a confident movie or no. a confident character no who acts like that yeah but this one it didn't work for me but a bit flat 
Yeah. A bit flat. (laughs) A bit flat. All right. Well, we're going to talk about how much of this is true. You will be shocked when we come back after this quick break. Have you ever wondered what Tina Fey has in common with Jonathan Swift? Or how Star Wars is connected to feudal Japan? Or just how pervasive Shakespeare's influence still is? I'm Rhonda. And I'm Erin. And our show Pop DNA explores the literary and historical roots of your favorite pop culture works. Like the Greek mythology and early 20th century feminism echoed in the film Wonder Woman. Or the classic dystopian fiction and real-life political revolutions that informed the Hunger Games. Every month, we bring you a deep-dive discussion of a selected pop culture work. Featuring jokes no one will think are funny, and literary references no one asked for. Find us at thepopdna.blog. Or anywhere you get your podcasts. By the way, Shakespeare is bigger than Disney. Welcome back. Is it true... Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's actually one of the most accurate Billy the Kid movies. Really? Yes. Uh, especially any of those made prior to Young Guns. Interesting. Yes. So a historian, uh, Paul Andrew Hutton, wrote an article for True West magazine, Dreamscape Desperado. And he said... It's truer than previous films, that there's a lot that it gets right, but still killing the chief villains in a finish, in the finish was really wildly inaccurate. Oh, okay. All so, right. So they, ha- they were accurate right up until the end. No, but they were more, <laughs> they were more accurate. More accurate. That, okay. They I were, understand. They were, they had taken fewer liberties. And of course, a lot of the story behind this is fraught with inaccuracy in all the accounts that we have. We're not sure what's really real. Well, that's true. I mean, even in the film, they show how the newspapers were writing stories about things that were incorrect. Yes. You know, and Billy's all like, I'm not left-handed. Yeah. You know, because they had just assumed he was left-handed for some reason. So you can see how they messed it up. So I guess the film stayed true maybe to like the spirit of the... Of the exaggeration of yes. the tall tales. Oh, that's yes, that's an excellent way to put it. But you know, still really not all that accurate. Uh, Alex von Tunzelman wrote an article for the Guardian: "Young guns go for fun, not historical accuracy." <laughs> and Jackie has also looked at that exact same article. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's not completely inaccurate, just exaggerated. Tunstall did have a gang of cowhands, though it's not clear that he was their Dumbledore. In real life, there's no particular reason to think that Tunstall was a more morally virtuous figure than Murphy. They were just two parties in a business war. Uh, The regulators were deputized, but the film is really black and white about who's good and who's bad, and that's it wasn't really that way. It was much more gray. You know what? In that time period of when this movie was made, uh, really until recent times, I think, honestly, until the last decade, 15 years, we didn't tell stories that weren't divided by white hats and black hats. Right. We just didn't. It was very... Well, I think that's a very cultural thing in the past 30, 40 years. Yeah. There's been a real move towards 
distinct right and distinct wrong and no gray areas in between. Right. And so then you start to see some movies, some films break through, but it's always with controversy. Yeah. Really until Game of Thrones. Yeah. Game of Thrones hit, and that's super recent. Yeah. But um, I think that was the first piece of art that came out that people started to say how interesting it was that no character was good or bad. And that's just a hail to George R. R. Martin's writing yeah. that he was actually able to create characters that were so comprehensive, which other writers had not really so much accomplished. Mm-hmm. So John Tunstall, they showed him as dying the morning after the New Year's Eve party. He did not die on New Year's Day, 1878. He died on February 18th of 1878. So they took a little liberties there. And most historians believe that Tunstall had probably surrendered. And he was reported as shot through the breast with a rifle and shot in the back of the head with a revolver. And it seems like the posse who surprised him and murdered him faked a crime scene and shot his gun and put it near his body trying to say he fought back. But the way he was shot, really probably not at all. So sad. Yeah, it is sad. Billy the Kid did work for Tunstall and was indeed a regulator. The regulators were a real thing. I'm looking at his photo. Yeah, that's only like one of two known photos of Billy the Kid. Emilio Estevez was a good choice. Yeah, yeah, he was. And they, did you see, they had a part where he had his picture taken and it looked just like that photo. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny because... What is so intriguing about him is that he's a little short, a little yeah. small, a little scrawny. Uh-huh, a little, very young looking, mm-hmm. not an imposing figure. Right. He has that particular Just charm. Pr- probably why he was so lethal. Right. Absolutely. Shoot, he stood there in that bar having a conversation and literally laughed at the guy. Uh-huh. But because he looked so, I don't know, unhinged, it didn't quite compute that right. this guy was calculating how to address the, this issue. It was just crazy. Yeah. I don't know. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Doc Skurlock. Yeah. He uh, didn't marry a woman whose family was Chinese immigrants. He'd been married uh, for two years at the time of the events oh. already. Yep. And um, he was also not nearly as cute as Kiefer Sutherland. And let me tell you why. <laughs> Doc went to Mexico in 1870, and while he was there, he and another man had an argument over a card game, and they drew their pistols. The other man shot first, and the bullet went through Doc's mouth, knocking out his front teeth and coming out the back of his neck without causing serious injury. Fight club, fight club, fight club. He had a fight club moment. He had a fight club moment. Through the mouth. Yeah. It's not easy to actually hit the spine in the back of the yeah. neck. <laughs> Evidently I'm not. Sorry, apparently that is so funny. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. So, no, he, so he would kind of look like Edward Norton at the end of Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. Edward wow. Norton was still cute though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. So there were more than just like seven or so. Regulators, Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were a group of like 50 to 60 men at the time of the Battle of Lincoln, which was 
what happened in the house, what we saw at the end, the big yeah. like final battle was called the Battle of Lincoln. And yeah, there were like a lot of them. Oh, yeah. How about that? Yeah. But, you know, we already had trouble keeping track of like the six pretty guys and all the tertiary <laughs> characters. True. True. So they couldn't add like three, four dozen more men in there. Uh, the governor in New Mexico was indeed Governor Axtell, but he was not fired directly by President Hayes. He was probably bribed by the Murphy clan, though they were the Murphy Dolan clan, and he had some uh, business interspersings with them. So he probably was not all on the up and up, but it was actually uh, the Secretary of Interior who investigated Axel's Axtell's activities and found them to be corrupt. Gotcha. So there was a measure of corruption. Billy the Kid did kill his would-be assassin, Joe Grant. <laughs> I was hoping that part be true. It's mostly true. That oh, part no. is true. Oh, no. Well, oh, no. they had that as happening in 1878 when all of the events of this movie happened. Mm-hmm. That actually didn't happen until 1880. Oh. Yeah. And he did ask to look at the gun and admire his revolver and took out a bullet so that he could kill the man. That is funny. Yeah. So there you go. Accuracies. Chinese immigrants. They were a thing over there on the West Coast Mm -hmm. in the California area. Not so much in New Mexico. And they came over for Gold Rush and ended up working on the railroads Helped build, you know, the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh But there were very few women immigrants. Ah. It would have been extremely unlikely that a woman and her 14 children would have come over to the United States and would, would have gone beyond California if they had. It was unlikely they would end up all the way in, out in New Mexico. With a dry cleaner? That was a little bit of the uh, 1980s cultural perception sneaking in, right? Yeah, Am I, I, think right? It, I think it really was. In fact, in 1890, less than 5% of the Chinese population in the United States was female. Wow. So, yeah, that would have been super rare. I was actually surprised to hear the word dry cleaning. So I was thinking, really? I thought they just said laundry, but... Oh, maybe they maybe did. I, maybe maybe I read into it. Maybe... Ooh, we're seeing a little of your own. Maybe uh, I am. Yeah, a little of your own, like Maybe childhood so. leaking in. I thought it was just laundry. Because he said over a shirt. I thought it was just laundry. But Maybe it was just laundry. Yeah, that's eh, right. But I just, I can't, I can't separate taking your laundry somewhere to be cleaned from dry cleaning. Right. Because if you're going to go do your laundry outside of your house, you go to a laundromat. Yeah, right? But you're... they do often have services, I suppose. But I just, I guess in my mind, it's like if you take your laundry to be done, it's a dry cleaner. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, I think so. Yeah. You know, because otherwise have wash- you do your own while you're there. You know what I mean? Or we have washers and dryers in our house. Or so we have a it makes sense that back in the Old West when you have to like beat it on a rock yeah. or rub it on a washboard. Right. Yeah. That you would have somebody else do it. That you might have somebody else do it. A mercantile owner, you don't... You, that's not a good use of your time. I suppose so. Yeah. 
I suppose so. Yeah. Extremely unlikely. And also, I have to point out that they put her in geisha-type makeup, which is Japanese. Thank you. I was really confused about that, too, because I was like, she's Japanese. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And then they said she was Chinese, and I was like, what? And I don't know if that was supposed to be a commentary on the fact that she was kind of a slave, and so they equated one Asian country with another and wanted her to look that way because it was fetishized. Or maybe Murphy made her look that yeah, way. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like he was in having her play that role. Play that role. Yes, that's an excellent that's, way of putting it. That's maybe very yep. true. All right. Then uh, Chavez told of the massacre of his clan. And while that is based on true events. That's entirely fictional. I went looking to see if there was 207 of his clan members were killed in a raid by the army. And uh, I couldn't find anything Hmm. there were, I couldn't find any listing of stuff that happened in New Mexico, lots in Arizona and surrounding areas, Mm -hmm. lots all over the country dating back as early as 1325 and, you know, going much further into modern history than any of us would like, Uh but nothing in particular in the 1870s. So maybe they just generalized the story. I think so, which I kind of thought was interesting that they would touch on that bit of cultural narrative because it's pretty ugly part of the U.S. past. It really kind of is. I think it was kind of interesting to like pull that in and be like, give people a chance to hear about it and hear that that happened and to know that this was one of the more accurate portrayals of Billy the Kid and therefore some of the other things in it are probably fairly accurate. It's like they took a, a summary of, yeah. of truths and then just create a story to represent them. You know, because even in, in, the, in the film you see that they're fighting and calling him a Mexican and he's irritated yeah. because he's not. Right. And, but he is. He's a Mexican indigenous. So he's a, a native Mexican. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Right. He's of those tribes. I right. mean, do we hear? Is he Navajo? He, uh, in the movie. In the he's movie, he's Navajo. Navajo and Mexican. In real life, he was Spanish and a different Native American. A different. Yeah. Different tribe. Different so indigenous tribe. They kind tribe. of allowed the story to be generalizable yeah. and told that story about, about that. And, um, living in Texas, of course that means a lot because, right. you know, our history with Mexico is definitely a uh, more of a thing than most of the country would right. sort of realize. Right. I think. Well, I mean, there's a reason why they called it six flags because there's been six mm-hmm. flags flying over Texas and, relatively mm-hmm. recent history. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's the same in other places too. We had six flags over, over Georgia and right. we had six flags, but right. the, the history was different. I mean, it right. wasn't, you know, but yeah, but yeah, it's a it's very involved history yeah. and uh, it was interesting to see him kind of represent that. I think Lou Diamond Phillips did a really good job mm-hmm. of okay. that. So I have a couple things to talk about in our psychology break. And I also want to hear your thoughts on Billy the kid. So I'm going to, Go through my stuff and Shoot. then turn it over to you. Shoot, I'm excited. <clears throat> I'm excited. Okay, so really what I thought of, I was trying to think about, I'm like, we talked a lot about antisocial stuff lately. I wanted to talk about revenge. <laughs> because really that's what 
all of this is. Yeah, how it's, easily we conflate the ideas of justice and revenge. Uh-huh, yeah, yes. The psychology of revenge, retribution, is a paradox called the revenge paradox. And when we take out revenge on another person, we often feel worse afterwards when we thought we would feel better. This is from John Grohl on his blog. He talks about this. And it made me think of The Office. So you have... You have your Golden Girl stories, and I have my office stories. When Pam is pregnant, Michael dates her mother. (laughs) And then he breaks up with her on her birthday, and it makes Pam very, very angry. Mm -hmm. So Michael tries to bribe her uh, with a raise so that she'll quit being mean to him in the office because she's really mad at him about her mom and rightfully so because he was terrible to her but he wants it to end he wants like forgiveness and he's willing to give her a raise if she'll just stop it okay and she was like okay but that's not enough and he starts rattling off things about what would what she could do that he'd be willing to do. And he's, what do you want to do? Do you want to hit me? She's like, yes, yes, I want to do that. And she ends up slapping him in the episode. And as they walk away, she admits to her husband, Jim, that she does not feel better. She was like, no, you were right. I don't feel better. Yeah. 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 Because you, you typically don't. And we're bad at predicting how we're going to feel about revenge. And Really, it tends to keep your anger alive. It does. When you're seeking out revenge. I think people, well, they grasp the revenge energy because negative energy is a substantial amount of energy. When you're sad, you're upset, you've been betrayed, you need a lot of energy to process that. And unfortunately, the negative energy is like, quick. It's a quick fix for an energy. It's just an energy fix, though. It doesn't actually fix the situation. And so it's very hard. Yeah. We often, as you mentioned, conflate and confuse revenge with justice. Mm -hmm. And some people will argue revenge and justice are the same thing. I kind of disagree. And Psychology Today had an article by uh, Leon Seltzer uh, about what the differences are. Revenge is predominantly emotional. Justice is primarily rational. It's not so much as getting even. It's about exacting a socially acceptable accounting. Right. It seeks resolution. It seeks reconciliation. And Mm -hmm. it sets things right. Right. Without being overly punitive. Correct. Punitive for the sake of... Trying to make things right. Right. Exactly. Um, And it is in a social setting. Obviously, you know, our justice system is named so in that way. And we call it a rehabilitation. Now, whether we're actually achieving those goals or not remains to be debated. Sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it really wrong and whatever. But the thought is that justice is better for society and for the individual. Right. People will feel better 
when somebody else actually understands the breadth of their wrongs and can make that change. We actually do feel better because things have been set right. There's a reconciliation and ending to the story. Yeah. Uh, You know, there's no ending to the story if you just smack them back. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. All right. The second is revenge is by nature personal and justice is impersonal, impartial, and with a social and legal aspect to it. I, I agree and I disagree. Oh, okay. I agree because he's right, but I don't think that it negates the personal. True. I do think that people are very moved by justice itself. And, um, and not only that, I mean, a lot of people with religious backgrounds, with spiritual backgrounds who ascribed, I mean, most of the world religions, uh-huh. um, you know, including Christianity, um, we all have this idea of justice, yeah. freeing the oppressed, you know, setting the captives free and, and then also setting the, the slave owners free by correcting their thoughts, having them understand. There's this idea of setting it all back to correctness, of holiness, of rightness. Mm-hmm. And that's actually throughout all the religions, this right. idea of, of yeah. justice. So a justice is very personal. Revenge is an act of vindictiveness, while justice is an act of vindication. Ooh, I like this. So justice is grounded in assumptions, conventions, and doctrines having to do with honor, fairness, and virtue. Its purpose isn't vindictive. That is, bloodthirstiness has no part, nor should have no part, in the precepts of justice. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I like that's it. good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For revenge is about cycles. Justice is about closure. Oh. And that was like one of the biggest things. And that kind of goes hand in hand with the fifth one. Revenge is about retaliation. Justice is about restoring balance. Mm-hmm. So it's really difficult for people as humans to really agree on what a balance of revenge would be justice is a little easier because it's kind of moderated by a neutral third party typically right is how we think about it so i was really hurt by something i'm going to take my revenge on you well while you feel like that's the balance that you need that feels like too much for the person that you're retaliating against Mm -hmm. and then they're going to come back at you because they feel like you've overstepped. We're out of balance again. And rather than having balance, it perpetuates a cycle. Yeah. There's no such thing as getting even. There's really not. And that's because we live in community. Right. Right. Like if, if somebody does me wrong and that hurts me, then it hurts the people around me. So somebody takes up my my revenge, my honor, and goes and does something to their family. Well, you haven't just done something to that person. You've done something to an innocent person who now receives the repercussions of what's going on there. And then that person now has a right to get even because you've unintentionally affected their life when they were innocent. So then they come back to the family. This is how like Family feuds start. Mm-hmm. This is Blood how this feuds. works. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, everybody would just be dead. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's yeah. the point. Well, and that's why the Bible and many other religions have ideas of an eye for an eye. You know, you hear that, you say, oh, no, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Yes, yes. But at that time, they were trying to stop this, these kind of 
ruminating blood feuds that Mm -hmm. just continued and didn't stop. They were trying to say, here is justice for you. If, you know, somebody loses an eye, they lose an eye and you're square. Right. Like that, ironically, it actually sets boundaries on justice, which is then later on when the new ideas came forth about, okay, but turn the other cheek. Like Jesus in in the Christian Bible says, turn the other cheek. And, you know, he wasn't saying be passive doormat. What he was explaining was the idea of grace and justice, right? That, that we have to have, we have to infuse more wisdom into our responses that go there and that nobody is going to actually come out ahead if everybody's even. Right. And um, because it does not even, it's everybody's negative. Right. All right. So tell us your thoughts about Billy the Kid. Uh-huh. Okay. This is the scene. I totally paused on the scene because I was like, I don't know that I believe him. But okay. he wanted to uh, get the attention of the president. Right. To- he knew by, you know, inciting violence and being crazy that he was going to get the attention of the president on him. And I thought, I don't think so. I think oh. he's using this as a manipulative moment to explain his actions. Mm-hmm. And maybe he even thought about it before. Right. But it's not the driver of his behavior. He's not doing bad things for the right reasons. He's just found the right reasons to try to justify I, his bad things. Oh. I think there's a difference. I, th- I think you're right. I think that you're right, too. You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons mm-hmm. and the wrong thing for the right reasons. Yeah. And, you know, it's a balance. And I think he was doing maybe a version of a right thing. Kind of. Maybe. But for the wrong reasons. But for the wrong reasons. So it was probably good to have the United States authorities paying a little bit more attention to what was happening in New Mexico because there was a whole lot of corruption, a whole lot of bad things happening. Mm -hmm. And it was good for them to get involved to let these corrupt people know that they couldn't just run rampant all over all over these people but he was really doing it for selfish reasons right and so it's kind of begs that question he was so super smart at least in this film the way that they portrayed him he was so smart that he realized that the right thing provided a space for him (laughs) for him to be antisocial and cause mayhem yeah yeah and he gravitated he really enjoyed he enjoyed the all oh he so enjoyed the shootouts and the dysfunction and the arguing and the fighting and all of it and this movie he loved it thrived on it he did he thrived on it i do think that they showed how he sort of did crave a bit of companionship a little bit of a pal yeah you know what i'm saying like yeah. i think he did like that i think he probably based on this film had a genuine desire to to take revenge for Tunstall because a person like that may be antisocial but they're not totally ungrateful like they can see that the sacrifice that Tunstall made for others and and would have made for him if he had so needed such an education right. which he didn't but the guy was being so nice to him and rescued him and i i think there was something genuine in there but it does beg this question of what do we do with these people who are so stinking smart that they realize what has to be done and then find their own selfish space in it? And can we, can we square with that? 
Yeah. Because pol- this is politicians, y'all. Politicians often will see what has to be done. It's right. Then they're excited because in order to achieve that, there's a space for their selfish ambition and they're not oblivious to it. Right. And it kind of drives us crazy because we want them to be more altruistic than they are. Are we willing to accept somebody who is just wise and maybe just admittedly not so altruistic if it's the right thing? And is that the same thing as justifying the means for the end? And oh my gosh, I'm just bringing all of the biggies. There's just all the biggies. So this is why I paused. Because I went through a rabbit trail. Yeah. (laughs) Because you were like, I can't pay attention to this until I think through it a little bit. Yeah. I think those are big questions. Like, where does the pendulum swing? Where does the, where's the line drawn? How many cliches can I come up (laughs) with for this situation? Yeah. I think we all have a personal conviction about where somebody moves from being generally less altruistic than we want to, but still right hearted and going to achieve the right thing. Right. And then where we move to somebody who is just no because you are driven by the wrong things, you are justifying the means for the end, and I'm not okay with that. Right. Where does that move? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I think that's the big question of like every politician, right? Right. You look at them and you're like, okay, well, they might benefit from XYZ, but they're doing XYZ, and it has a greater benefit than just to themselves, and am I okay with that? And I think... That's really and that's why the I hardest paused. choice you have to make. Yes, because See, my pause I totally was, missed it. What was what really driving him? You're trying to make was me he... like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've succeeded, but I can I see know. you trying. I mean, what drove Billy the Kid? Was it really that he was antisocial and then found a way to use that in society a bit so that he can, what, reconcile his own conscience? Or was he actually just trying to do better things but just couldn't quite get himself to a place of better character? I don't know. I think within this movie, it was the former, Mm. that he was really justifying his dark desires with something that was a pro society benefit. Yeah. So I like personally have a pet peeve with ends justify the means. Yeah. I don't like it. Because I feel like if it, if your ends are so virtuous, then there's no way you're going to reach there. If your character isn't virtuous, Mm. you can have your character and you can have a, you can be all talking about virtues and you can have a wonderful passion but if you spend all your time talking about virtues and your passion and you fail to develop a virtuous character, I don't think you're actually going to reach your ends. But there's a muddy ground there between those people who are just like human and less altruistic than we want them to be, who recognize that they get to kind of they get to kind of spin their web and they get to kind of do all of this stuff, but they also do really have a heart for the real ends and they wouldn't cross certain lines. Billy the Kid crossed lines. He killed people well, like, a lot. In in the movie. In the and, movie. And, and who knows in real life? Who knows? I mean, it, it could have been a very similar situation. Undoubtedly, historically, Billy the Kid killed a bunch of people. Right, that's, that's the historical record. But... Who knows why? Who knows if he wasn't I mean, doing it in defense? He he may have been doing it in defense. He may have been doing it in defense of himself or others. 
I mean, he could have been creating situations where he had to defend himself because he's incited somebody so horribly because of his antisocial behavior that now he gets to call it defense. That's called gaslighting. Right. Well, or perhaps he was himself pushed into situations by others where he was forced to behave that way. And maybe he didn't really, maybe he wasn't really antisocial. He just was... A justice seeker who always ended up on the rampage. Or ended up in the middle because of whom he associated with, ended up in the middle of situations where other people were pulling out guns. The idea that the story that he killed Joe Grant because he was being hunted by that man and then, but played with him first kind of makes me think that this movie is maybe not completely off the mark. Yeah. That's what my thought was. Yeah. I feel like he's an antisocial character who has no bounds of virtuous character, but also sort of sees how he can manipulate a good end Uh to allow himself to continue. Because, you know, all right. So doc has this quote when he's sitting down like in the, water after a little gunfight and he goes i'm not liking him much and i thought that's the movie yeah right there yeah quote of the movie i'm not liking him much and he says it so like relevatory like oh i'm not liking him much and i'm thinking is this the first time you've thought this because if i were you band of regulators i'd have been like uh you you are chaos absolute antisocial you're a cancer to this group. Right. No way. Yeah. At least the first time he killed the guy in the bathroom by, I mean, that was manipulative, right? Like, how does they not lay the law down on him right then? They should have. But they kind of, well, they, they justified the means because of the end that they had. Right. Oh. oh. <laughs> I've ruined your morning. Oh. No, you haven't. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that you could ruin this particular morning. It's yeah, a, it's a good it's morning. A good, it's a good morning. It's a good morning. <laughs> oh. uh, all right, real life. Real life. So you know, it's always kind of challenging when you have so much that's actually at least borderline factually correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. On New Year's Eve, the cowboy party all shot up into the air at midnight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe, maybe don't do that. Maybe not. (laughs) Because there are physics behind why firing a gun into the air can kill someone. This is an article by Forbes talking about, it's a couple years old. So, but I think the physics probably haven't changed. Yeah. They stand the test of time. I would say a bullet, the way it's shaped the reason it's damaging is because it breaks the skin. Right. So like once it breaks the skin, it can cause a lot of damage inside you. So if it wasn't going fast enough to break the skin. So like if I took a bullet and like lobbed it at you with my hand, right. I'm not going to break the skin. You're not going to be hurt by it. But when you shoot it from a gun, it's going much faster. And that's what causes the, the real issue And so when you fire a bullet straight with no wind, it can reach a height straight up of about 10,000 feet, which is yeah, really, really high. When it comes back down, it's going just 10% of the speed as when you fired it up and only with about 1% of the energy. So it's much less dangerous. Yeah. But if it actually hits you, it hits you on the top of the head, 
as long as it can break the skin, it can harm you. Oh, wow. So 150 miles an hour, which is about how fast it's going when it comes back down. That's a, the average terminal velocity of a average size bullet. Mm-hmm. It's still it, enough to cause a problem. It's still enough to really, really harm you. So don't shoot the guns into the air. Yeah, don't this do is that. Re- it's really like it's not. And if you don't shoot it straight up, you know, if you shoot it at even a slight angle, it's going somewhere else. I yeah. mean, it can come down miles away from where you are and you don't know who you're going to hit. You yeah. don't, I mean, just don't do just, it. Just don't do it. It's really a poor choice. It's. <laughs> <laughs> I talk to my kids all the time about making good choices. Shooting a gun straight up in the air is not a good choice. Not a good choice. But, you, you know, I mean, all right. <laughs> And when should you use the words avenge and revenge? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. So avenge is always a verb. To avenge. Yes. I will avenge is their death. always an action word. And revenge can either be a noun or a verb. So Now, what's really the difference between the two? They're the same thing. I, it, they're the, I think they're the same thing. Avenge is to take revenge on someone, right? Yeah, yes. I mean, yeah. I know we use the word avenge more like it's justice, as if for some reason the avenging of the death sets things right. Y- yes. But when that plays out, it looks a lot like revenge. Uh, I think it really kind of is revenge. Like, yeah. Yes. I mean, what you, the Avengers are justice seekers. Can see, this is what I'm telling you. Yeah. But really, it's they're kind of revenge seekers. Yeah. That makes sense. So I try to avoid Avengers movies oh, as much as possible. Definitely. Because I don't really care for the like superhero movies. If it's not got Batman or Spider-Man in it, I really don't want to see it. And even those, like it's got to be kind of a special one. Really, the only ones I like are Iron Man. Oh, okay. I like Iron Man. Oh, okay. But he's also kind of nerdy, uh-huh. so I really appreciate oh, that. I... And it's Robert Downey Jr. So um, it has two things going for it. Okay. Um, but yeah, I don't really like superhero movies a lot at all. I like Lego Batman. Okay, now that was hysterical. Yeah. The Okay, that was really funny. The Lego would movie, you, Lego would you like Batman. Some lobster Thermidor? <laughs> The whole movie was so funny. It was so funny. Not a superhero movie, though. No. Into the Mm Spider-Verse was an animated movie about Spider-Man, and it was fantastic. Really? It was really, really good. Hmm. Really interesting animation style for the main movie, and then it blended different animation styles. Oh, interesting. Which was really cool. It had a fun soundtrack and a really original good story, and it wasn't overly superhero-y. Oh. So, if you're looking for a, a, a superhero movie that's not so superhero-y... We loved Into the Spider-Verse. My problem is that I'm not opposed to superhero powers. No. I'm opposed to the way that they've done these stories. I dislike... First of all, I really dislike that there's 800 different versions of the story, and I can't keep them all straight. I'm like, pick one. Just pick one. And and, and then they they really develop these characters in ways I don't like. Well, that's fine. So I, I mean, my... you know, if you love superhero movies, good for you. We're so happy for you. Yes, we are. We're so glad that you and like ninety percent of Americans love these shows. 
I, I don't need to watch 22 hours of other movies to be able to understand Endgame. Yeah, and I just, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I didn't see Endgame. Me either. Your family saw it, right? My family saw it. They started from the beginning. From the beginning. They watched all the movies leading up. And they did. They enjoyed it. And I'm happy for them. Yeah. I just, uh, you know what? Yeah. Not for me. Yeah, me either. Me either. All right. So next time. Next time. Next time we're going to do The Handmaid's Tale. Now we've covered the very pilot episode of Handmaid's Tale on Hulu back a while ago. We talked about that. So we're going to look at season two, episode one. That is the first episode of the Hulu show that came after this, where the story ended in Margaret Atwood's original book that came out in the eighties, the Handmaid's Tale. So that was the one I kind of had an idea of what was going to happen through the entire first season of the Handmaid's Tale. And I had no idea what was coming next in season two. So we're going to, we're going to do that. And then at some point in the nearish future, we're going to do the first episode of season three in preparation for season four that will come out, but we don't have a release date for that yet. So once we know release date for season four, we'll cover the first episode of season three so that we can kind of prepare for that. So we're going to have a little series, though it won't be consecutive episodes. Right. We're not going to cover all the episodes. Right. Um, And we're not going to cover all the episodes and we're not going to cover two and three, the pilot episodes of two and season two and season three in a row. We'll get to those, but this is going to be the second in a series for us. Yes. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. uh, This narrative has me absolutely captivated. Yeah. It's, I mean, and it's very, very timely and very interesting. And Margaret Atwood's a genius. She really is. Say that. She's a genius. And I don't love all of her books. There are some that I've read and could appreciate how well written they were, but I didn't really like the story that Mm -hmm. much. But The Handmaid's Tale has been a favorite of mine since I read it in high school. So, I, and I still haven't read it. Oh my gosh. It's I, so you know, good. I've read a lot of dystopias. I read a lot of books, but I just didn't read this one. And so this has been very eye opening because as far as dystopias are concerned, you know, you know, well, 1984 is a big one, but like Brave New World, Player Piano, like these were things that were very instrumental to me. And even in my young adulthood and, um, looking at Atwood's story here, it's, hitting me in a way. And obviously it's about women. So it obviously is going to hit me a little bit more personally than a generalized humanity story in some ways, anyways. And yet there's something else that hits me sort of particularly. Yeah. We'll have to get into that. We'll, we'll we'll get into all that. So did you love young guns? Yeah. Didn't you? If you loved young guns, if you saw it when it was in the movie theater and just adored it, or you saw it later and just adored it, or you're a huge fan of Westerns, or we got something wrong in our assessment, we absolutely want to hear about it. We want to hear from you, dear listener. Yes, you. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment. You can find us on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod, or you can send us an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. We would absolutely love to hear from you. And 
we know that we don't come on the radio, that you make a choice when you listen to us. And we so appreciate that. Rate, review, subscribe, please subscribe and tell a friend because it's way more fun when you can talk about it with a friend. Yes. Let's keep the discussion going online and we will see you the next time. I'm Christy. And this is Josh. And we are the Mountains and the Sea. It's a podcast about Prince and his vast musical output. We look at each and every Prince album. And ancillary material like fashion, videos, related artists, B-sides, remixes, outtakes. We choose a high, the mountain, a low, the sea, and a time capsule. Yeah, those are her dumb rules, not mine. Josh is a Prince superfan and has been since long before I met him. That's right, and I pulled Christy over to the purple side with my wit and my charm. The music helped. (laughs) Join us every other week anywhere you get your podcasts and happy purple listening, friends.